On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Thomas Williams about Anselm. So we cover all sorts of topics like who is Anselm, what new things did Dr. Williams learn as he prepared to write a very short introduction volume on Anselm, what did he come to appreciate or interpret potentially differently in Anselm than he did previously? What can a reader expect to take away from this book, as well as the other volume that he's worked on, on translation of a lot of Anselm's works? When it comes to choosing some of the prayers and letters to include in this volume, what goes into making those decisions? Are there theological reasons? Are there practical reasons? What's going on there? And so much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another uh, episode of The London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we are a podcast that is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And in thinking seriously, we've endeavored to give you a little bit of concrete what, what in the world do we mean by serious by saying that we want to create or cultivate a sort of intellectual culture of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So we want to be super rigorous about, about thinking at the highest level, um, but we also want to do it with particular virtues in mind. So we don't want to just simply have knowledge puff us up, but we want to have knowledge uh, increase our effectiveness, but also do it in a spirit of charity and ironicism. So I'm looking forward to this episode today, uh, particularly because we have Dr. Thomas Williams with us again, and he's just an awesome person. So that's one reason I want to do it. But ne- next, it's we're going to be talking about Anselm. And I think Anselm was just awesome for like 15, 20, 25 different reasons. So we will not have enough time in this episode to exhaust all of the riches that we can find in Anselm. But it's going to be a lot of fun because Dr. Williams has two um, resources on Anselm that are I've seen on Twitter that are like coming in in the physical life flesh. You've got a very short introduction in the VSI series as well, an expanded translation volume. So I'm going to be really excited to talk about both of those projects as well as just Ansem in general. So before we get started, Dr. Williams, um, since the last time we were on, I think you took a new role. So give me a little bit of background of what you're doing now and maybe what was it that really drew you to Anselm initially? Yes, I do have a new role. And thanks for having me on the show again. I'm really excited about this. Uh, I started at uh, Georgetown as, you know, with the grand new title of the Isabel A. and Henry D. Martin Professor of Medieval Philosophy. Uh, and it's been, it's just been a wonderful transition there, in part because my students are just spectacularly good. I mean, they're scary good. So I'm a little bit afraid of them, and I've really had to up my teaching game. That's, that's, that's been a challenge, but it's been the kind of adjustment that is really worth making and has, has been fantastic. Um, and I do, as you say, I have these two new Anselm volumes out. I've done a, f- a, f- a few other things uh, lately, a, a piece on Aquinas's atonement theory for the new Cambridge Companion to Aquinas, which is just out. Um, so I'm thinking a lot about not just Anselm, but about some of the issues that, that Anselm thought about. Very awesome. And let's just start here. Uh, for those who don't know who Anselm is, give me that 30,000 foot just introduction to this is when Anselm lived. This is what he did for a living. This is what he thought about those sort of things to give me a little bit of context. Anselm uh, was born in 1033, died in 1109. Um, he started as a monk in the uh, Abbey of Beck, which is in Normandy. Uh, in the 1050s and gained rapid advancement. Uh, he was It was not clear that he really especially wanted to be a monk. What was clear that is that he wanted to study with the uh, the, the great thinker Lanfranc, who was in charge of the school at, at the Abbey. But whatever his possible reluctance about becoming a monk, when he did become a monk, he threw himself into the monastic life wholeheartedly, quickly uh, gained uh, some part of the teaching in the school, took over the school when Lanfranc left, became prior, then became abbot, and then was called away uh, in 1093 to be Archbishop of Canterbury uh, under uh, William Rufus or William the Red, um, because he had uh, A, red hair, and B, a really hot temper. Um, and Anselm did not want this job, it seems pretty clear, largely because he knew that William Rufus was going to be uh, absolutely horrible uh, to deal with, and he ended up in exile. Um, a lot of contention. 
uh, he did outlive uh, William II and uh, Henry I came to the throne. That was a little better relationship, but then he ended up exiled again. Uh, he died ultimately in 1109 on April 21st, which is when we celebrate his feast day, if you do that sort of thing. So he, ne although he, he, he lost the kind of life that he liked best, which was a life of just monastic discipline and hanging out with, with bright and interesting students and doing theology and philosophy with them. That's what he really loved. And he's called away to do more and more and more administrative stuff, which was not where his heart was, though he did feel that that was God's call on his life and that he would be disobedient, uh, particularly with the archbishopric if he didn't take it. Uh, but he never stopped writing and he never stopped thinking. Uh, and he was uh, at the end of his life, he was hoping that he would write a treatise on the origin of the soul because he said, if, if I'm not left to do it, I don't know who is going to be able to. Um, a question that Augustine had famously left unresolved, but Anselm thought he had figured it out. Uh, but but he unfortunately did not live to write that treatise. Does is there, I know this is totally off topic. I had no idea that he had plans to do this. So, are there any clues to what he would have thought on as, on that topic? As far as I know, there are no clues <laughs> whatsoever. There's certainly nothing in this in the surviving works. Maybe there's a hint in one of the biographies. Um, but I, d I did my due diligence for the, for the Anselm very short introduction, um, to try to get a broad, it's, it's odd that to write something shorter, you have to read a lot more. Um, but I don't, I don't think anybody has a sense of what that solution was going to be. Well, now I'm very disappointed because that <laughs> is a question that I am fascinated by and would have loved to have known what Anselm thought on it, especially if he thinks that he had the answer or solution to it. Um, that so he maybe, did and nobody else was likely to come up with it. Which, that makes me wonder, like, is is he thinking outside the box? Is he thinking more of a traditional sort of model here? Because uh, if he thinks he has the solution that no one else has thought of, it seems like that would mean it's going to be creative. One thing you do see in Anselm, at least I think, and other Anselm scholars uh, would agree with this, that there's not a huge amount of substantive development in his thought. I mean, he sort of had things worked out. Um, and maybe you could mine his existing works for clues, but I, I don't see them. Um, but one thing that does change, and it's not a substantive thing, but more of a methodological thing or a way of presentation, which is that his way of presenting his views becomes more and more independent as he goes on. So early in his career, uh, in the 1070s, when he writes the Monologion, he's very careful to say, now look, I, I haven't said anything that August that you couldn't find in Augustine. I just thought I wanted to write it as coming from myself. When he gets to Cordeus Homo in the 1090s, uh, he says, yeah, I mean, clearly my theory of atonement uh, is not something the fathers have said, uh, but but that's okay because the, the mystery of God's work of redemption is so deep that you can never come to the end of it. So he goes from, oh, there's nothing new here, really, to, oh, there's absolutely something new here, but that's okay. Uh, and there's a sort of increasing independence of, uh, at least of presentation. And I would say also of thought. I mean, he, even in the Monologion, it's not strictly speaking true that he's following Augustine. He, go, he goes his own way. So where does he say that that's what he's doing with his projects? Because I've, I've honestly only read what the Monologion and the Proslogion and those, that's the extent of my experience with Anselm. Does so he have like autobiographical stuff? Um, a, a little bit, uh, but mostly it's in either prefaces to works or uh, letters. So in the case of the Monologion, we know, um, and if I can plug the new volume, which is one, perhaps one reason for our doing this conversation, um, which is just out in the physical world now. Um, so this is called Anselm, the Complete Treatises. Um, it's about 600 pages, I think. I'll have, I'd have to look. Um, but it, it, it is all the treatises with some, yeah, about 550. Um, with some letters, selected letters and prayers and the meditation on human redemption. And one of, one of the additions of this volume is the letters that we have about the monologion. So the monologion is the first big thing he writes, or at least the first big thing he circulates. Um, his work, uh, De Grammatico, which may or may not be intended as a kind of introduction to the categories, probably intended for classroom use, 
um, was probably written, I think, earlier, but didn't circulate until later. Uh, so the monologian is really his kind of entree into the philosophical theological world. It's the first thing he writes. And he sends it to his old mentor, Lanfranc, who, uh, so at this time, he's he's still at Beck. Lanfranc is, Lanfranc is Archbishop of Canterbury. And he says, you know, I, I want you to look at this. I don't, you know, it may be terrible. And I don't, I don't even want it. You give it a title. I don't, I don't, I don't think it's worthy of the title, but if, if it, if it pleases you, um, I would love it if, if the person who inspired it would give it its title. It's this very almost fawning letter, but in the, in the style of the time and probably genuine in, in, in a, in a sense, though I'm about to contradict myself. Um, and he, he also even says, if you, if you don't think it's unworthy of publication, then let your copy be committed to the four elements. Let it be burned, cast to the wind, um, buried in the earth, or drowned in the water. Just let me know what you've done with the copy so that I can do the same thing with my copy. We don't have uh, the response from Lanfranc, but we can tell from Anselm's response that Lanfranc did not like Anselm's way of presenting his reasoning as coming from his own head. So the, the pattern of reasoning in the monologion is, as he says at, at the beginning, this is something that anybody could figure out for themselves if they were just, as he puts it, moderately intelligent. And if they just reason silently within themselves, they can follow, at least follow this pattern of reasoning. Um, and it's, he's not citing authority. He never says, well, as we know from Augustine, as we know from scripture, um, he, it's all, and, and Lanfranc hated that. Uh, so apparently wrote back to him and said, I don't understand this. Where are the citations to Augustine? Where are the citations to scripture? Where are the church fathers and all this? And despite Anselm's professed willingness to tear it up, burn it, drown it, or bury it, if Lanfranc didn't like it, he in fact uh, just says, oh, well, I didn't, I didn't say anything that wasn't in Augustine. And, you know, please do give it a title. Um, and that is the last time he ever submits anything to Lanfranc for approval. So in that sense, he was kind of going his own way uh, early on. He at least was, although he, by in his, by his own lights, he wasn't departing from authority. He was departing from the mode of authority. Um, this was supposed to be accessible to reason alone. Again, if you're at least moderately intelligent. That's interesting. So uh, you've got two volumes and I wanted to talk about both of them. And I want to start with the very short introduction because I think like you mentioned earlier, you had to read a whole bunch more to write a short book, which is ironic, but you've been studying Anselm and related figures your whole life. What is it that you learned that you would say, this is something you didn't realize before you wrote this book about Anselm or there are things that just kind of came up. There, there definitely are some things. I mean, you know, I have an earlier book with Sandra Visser uh, about Anselm that is uh, a, a good bit longer. And some of what we worked out together about Anselm has made its way uh, into the very short introduction. It's not like I've changed, you know, like I've reconceived his atonement theory or come to different conclusions about what he thinks about the divine nature or the the argument of the proslogia. But there definitely are some things that are that are new that I've I've come to realize. And one is I have a very different take on Anselm as an administrator. Hmm. Um, a lot of us who write on Anselm are very much under the spell of Richard Southern's great biography. And it is an absolutely great biography and a masterpiece of scholarship. And the kind of the Anselm that we get presented there, and that I would say Gillian Evans also uh, perpetuates probably under, under his spell, as it were, is of somebody who is just in over his head as an administrator. So Evans talks about how he, and, and, I, and I've quoted her on this approvingly, right? Um, he, that he, he kind of has a firefighting approach to administration. He waits for some problem to erupt. And then he, then he, he tries to put out the fire, but that he's not a naturally gifted administrator. He's not very good with money. He doesn't know how to schmooze with people. Um, and it just turns out on wider reading uh, that that's just not true. Um, Sally Vaughn for me has a, a historian, I think now retired from the University of Houston, uh, has written a lot about Anselm 
in that context and has absolutely persuaded me that, yeah, he was, he actually was a very effective administrator, though all of that work belonged to the world as opposed to the monastery. And in entering the monastery, he had turned his back on the world. So there was a certain sense in which he was resentful a bit and out of his element a bit. But as I said before, he, he also strongly believed that this this was what God was calling him to do. It would be a matter of disobedience not to do it. And it would be a matter of disobedience not to do it to the best of his ability. And one of Anselm's great abilities, which I emphasize now a lot in the VSI that I either don't talk about at all or barely talk about in uh, the, the earlier bigger book for Oxford, um, is that he had a tremendous gift for friendship. Um, as Sally Vaughan puts it in one place, uh, when 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 people opposed him or tried to thwart him, he would just love them into submission. And the thing about it is, the love was genuine. He really did love uh, the most unlikely people and made friends with the most unlikely people, um, ne'er do wells, and you know people who were only very tenuously churchmen. There is uh, as only. Um, as Sally Vaughn says in one place, there is only one uh, person who was reported to have hated Anselm uh, in his adult life, and that was William II. Um, and there's a great line which I will botch, uh, but at some point he wrote to one of his nobles or maybe one of his bishops, uh, yesterday I hated him with a great hatred. Today I hate him with a greater and more powerful hatred. And every day henceforth, I will hate him with a still greater and more intense hatred. Um, so that gives you an idea of how things went badly between king and archbishop. Uh, but generally speaking, Anselm was actually very effective just because he, he was delightful and friendly, uh, and he made people feel loved. He all, and as a result, he actually was able in our terms to schmooze with donors really well. And the abbey prospered under his leadership and gained lands and gained influence. And um, all of that is stuff that I just didn't realize until I read more widely. Another thing that's new in this, one thing you want to do, that, so you don't need to do for a big scholarly book, but you do need to, to do for a 30,000 word book for a more popular audience is um, actually perversely sort of ask some big picture questions that wouldn't occur to you otherwise. So in a big scholarly book, people want to know what, so what is your analysis of the ontological argument uh, and you know, that sort of thing. But you also want, you want to give people a sense of what Anselm's was, was, what Anselm was like and how his work holds together. And one question that kept coming up for me is, how does it make a difference that Anselm is a monk? Being a monk is very important to him. A lot of his uh, letters are to monks and nuns, encouraging them, giving them pastoral advice. Uh, and some of that advice has made it into the, the translation volume. But you know, what difference does it make to his work? And there's some sort of obvious answers. Well, a lot of his works are actually, or at least so he tells us, written in request, uh, in answer rather, to requests from his monks. So that the monologian is uh, his students saying, we really love what you've said about how to meditate on the on the reason of faith. Would you please put that, that down in writing so that we will have it in, in front of us and we can keep going through it. And so he does that. The proselogion, on the other hand, is an obsession of his own. Um, but that obsession probably wouldn't have been born had he not written the monologion and, and found some dissatisfaction with how complex it was. And there are, there are other things that arise either in uh, answer to queries from monks or uh, in answer to something that's going on in the wider church that, that he wants to weigh in on. But that's kind of an unsatisfying answer. If it's the only true answer, you have to be satisfied with it. But what I came to see more and more is just as he takes monastic vows of obedience really seriously in his... Uh, pastoral advice and in his own life, he he takes the acceptance of authority really seriously as a philosopher in a strangely similar way. So as a monk, when I leave the world, I give up the need to make my own life, to figure out what I'm going to do. And I, I 
accept the authority of the abbot, which actually frees me up. And, and, and Anselm does see it as a kind of freedom. Right? The monk is free to think about the deep things of God without the burden of making a secular life, of making a living, of being in political battles or, or whatever it is. You, you, have a, you have a freedom to do what you're really meant to do, which is to come to know and love God better and better and more and more deeply all the time. That is not, that is not confinement. That is freedom. And in the same way for him, I think the acceptance of scriptural and patristic authority is similarly a kind of freedom because it enables you to do your thinking about God with an assurance that it's not going to go off the rails. And so you don't, although you are going to end up saying new things, you always do so from this uh, place of freedom that is granted to you because you have guides who are reliable and who are authoritative. And you know that if you start contradicting them, it's one thing to go to be, go beyond them. That's okay. But you know that if you start contradicting them, just as if you disobey your abbot, if you start contradicting Augustine, you know something's gone wrong. And so that, which is not to say that other monks wrote in this same way, this, uh, the way that Anselm generally writes, uh, which is a kind of, you know, sort of, we would think of it as just straightforward analytic theology. Mostly it's, he, here are the arguments, one after another. Um, so it doesn't sound monkish, but I think the freedom that Anselm feels to explore new intellectual territory is precisely the freedom that he thinks he has because he has accepted authority and he doesn't have to worry about, about going off track. He's got something to, to check any excesses or errors. And that was a new discovery for me. Yeah, that's, that's super interesting. So one other thing I was curious about was, did you change your interpretation of anything on Anselm's uh, theological or philosophical claims as you researched for this? I didn't. I mean, I would say the the biggest differences um, would be more in mode of presentation. There are things, there are things that I um, highlight more in the VSI than I did in the larger book, uh, and vice versa. I think I give more attention to some problems in metaphysics, oddly in 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 this book, uh, because and, and I and I do less with the Trinity. There was just not in a in a short book. I I couldn't delve into into all of that. But I think yeah. I I do think I have a nice self contained package that will give anybody um, you know who wants a nice thirty thousand word introduction, which is very reasonable, uh, to, um, to get a sense of, of Anselm and also maybe some guidance about where you might want to look next if, if you're interested in reading further. Um, so no, I, ha I haven't changed my view about anything. I still have my idiosyncratic, well, let's be honest, Sandra Visser's idiosyncratic interpretation <laughs> of the ontological argument, which she got to first. And there were that very awkward two or three days when she was there and I hadn't seen it yet. And she was just despairing of getting me to see it. And then I, then the light came on, um, still interpret, um, his atonement theory in, in the same way. Um, though I think I do more in the, in the VSI to situate it in light of, uh, contemporary objections to it very than cool. I, than I might otherwise have done. So, so no, I, I haven't really changed yeah. my mind and there are even some, one, one feature of the VSIs I really like is, is that they have text boxes. Um, and one thing you can do with text boxes is like, here's the text of the ontological argument. So that you can read it if you want to, if you just want to accept my word for what it says, you can also just skip that bit. Um, there's a, there's a text box with uh, one of Anselm's letters uh, to one of his monks to highlight the intensity of, of his language around friendship, uh, which again is a big theme of this book. And, and also to note that even even in his view of heaven, a lot of people sort of struggle to find any use for friends in heaven, right? Certainly Aquinas certainly doesn't think we need them. It's just, it's just, we've got the divine, we've got the vision of the divine essence. Uh, what could a friend add? Well, for, for Anselm at the end of the Proslogion, there's a whole beautiful meditation about how as much as we will rejoice in our own happiness, we'll rejoice in our friend's happiness. And if we love our friend's happiness as much as we love ourselves, we will rejoice as much for them as we do for ourselves. But now imagine all the countless happy human beings and angels 
And we can't even imagine the rejoicing that we will have individually, but the rejoicing that we will have corporately because of our friendship with the redeemed is is spectacularly unbelievable. So these kinds of things you can kind of stuff in a a text box if they interrupt the flow. But I also have a couple of little uh, methodological side swipes um, that I put in the text box where I say, here's how I do history of philosophy. Here's how some other people do it. And here's why I don't like that. Uh, So... Um, there is there is a little bit of of interaction with some contemporary, I, I would say some some trends or tendencies in contemporary scholarship that I find worrisome. Just enough to say, here's why I'm doing it this other way. Yeah, cool. I, I do want to ask you some questions about the expanded volume. Um, f- what works did you include in it? Because I, I think you mentioned some of them, um, but. W- why were they included in this one versus not the basic writings? What, what's the logic behind what's going in that volume? My thinking in the basic writings volume was I will include only what people are likely to teach. Uh, and so major works that are likely to get classroom use. And I, I decided that it would be a good thing to have basically all of the contents of the first two volumes of the critical edition, which is to say all of the treatises um, as well as the the early draft of the letter on the incarnation of the word, uh, you know, all in one place, all in English, all translated by one hand with a view toward stylistic and terminological consistency. And so I got to work on that. And at first just was posting additional translations on a, on a website, asked Hackett if they'd be interested in doing the expanded volume and, and they were all for it. So this this volume is about a third again larger than the original volume. So as far as actual whole works that I've included, I've included De Grammatica, which I mentioned before. Um, it turns out some people do teach that. Um, I mean, I've taught it at the graduate level. It seems a weird thing to teach to undergrads, but De Grammatica is a little hard to characterize, but it's a, it's kind of a dialogue in philosophy of language. And as you can imagine, translating philosophy of language from Latin to English is, or from any other language into English is difficult just because the languages work different. work differently. Um, but there's certainly some stuff in there that's interesting and the sort of stuff about the nature of, of thought and language that is, is useful in understanding other parts of Anselm. I added also the first uh, draft or prior recension, as they call it, of the letter on the incarnation of the word. And it's interesting to see that early draft and what made it in from the beginning and what then gets added later. I included some letters to give historical context. So those two letters to Lanfranc about the monologion are in there now. The uh, a, a series of letters, a couple of letters at least, uh, about the incarnation of the word and how he hears about um, Rosalind and his heresy and what what exactly Rosalind said and how that news got to him. Um, so those letters provide some some good, I think, historical context to understand the letter on the incarnation of the word. I also included the uh, On the Procession of the Holy Spirit, uh, which is another work that I would suspect doesn't get taught very often. But even that, you know, it's certainly worth looking at, uh, not just for its Trinitarian theology, but for uh, its material on the nature of individuation. So Anselm actually does have a theory of individuation uh, that is important to understanding some things he says elsewhere. Uh, And so really to get the full picture, you do need um, on the procession of the Holy Spirit. So those are the the works that are new to this. Then there's some, some letters of pastoral counsel to just to give a flavor of the sorts of advice that Anselm is giving. And also I, I really think that you don't get a full sense, and, and Sandra and I argued this in the earlier Oxford book, you don't get a full sense of, of Anselm's ethical thought until you see what his practical advice looks like. Uh, and so kind of putting my money where my mouth is, here are some letters where he does that. I've, I've not put in all the letters even that I think are most interesting. There's a really wonderful letter. I call it the necrophilia letter. You might want to cut this bit out, um, where he's, he's, he's writing to a woman who was a widow who had gone into a convent, uh, and now she wants to leave the convent to get married to her late husband's brother. They're both named Alan. One is Alan the Black, one is Alan the Red. So this is clearly the original historical source for this is my brother Daryl, and this is my other brother Daryl. 
And um, he the the letter that he writes to her basically tells her, um, you know, basically it's it's only lust and it's only the desire for a body that would tempt you to stray from basically taking the one safe path, which is living a monastic life. Anselm holds out very little hope that any of us non-monks will be saved. Uh, because, I mean, we're, we're in the world. It's really hard to be saved if you're in the world. Uh, but, it, but it's more than just, it's all about the body, and it's all about lust. He goes into graphic detail about the state of her late husband's moldering body and tells her, you know, lie down with this terrifying skeleton Press your lips to what is left of his moldering flesh. It's really, I mean, it's a, it's a great read in a sense because it's so over the top. Um, but I don't know that it's terribly helpful uh, in giving us a sense of, of what Anselm was like, or at least I didn't think it was worth including um, among the letters. But there's some the much more sensible letters about, um, you know, how our path in this life. Uh, we're always either going upwards or going downwards, and we should be very careful because Scripture tells us that it's very easy to fall a little bit at a time, and so we have to attend. We have to remember that it was only one act of disobedience um, that drove our first parents out of paradise. Um, just as it can be one act of disobedience that will forfeit a monk's ability to stay in the one safe place, which is the monastery, which he kind of thinks of as now an, an earthly paradise, almost an earthly Garden of Eden. Um. And at the risk of, so I'm afraid I'm making, I'm now making Anselm sound, sound like he's teaching works righteousness. Um, and there's certainly enough Protestant in, in me to get the heebie-jeebies about that. <laughs> so let me make it very clear uh, that for, for Anselm, um, it is only by grace that we can go on the upward path. Um, so if God restores grace to us after we have fallen, that's all on God. We can't get it back. Um, if we have fallen, we can't get up, not, not on our own. That has to be a restoration that comes from God. And any, any new grace uh, will also, of course, be entirely from God. So if I have the grace of chastity, um, but not the grace, say, of uh, sobriety, and then I come to have sobriety, that will be because God gave it to me, not because I worked myself up into you know, a spiritual frenzy and managed to acquire sobriety on my own. So it can be acquiring grace in a new dimension, or it can be a, or, or a new domain of life, or it can also be acquiring uh, a grace of greater intensity so that you hold on to righteousness more, more firmly and more, more passionately and with more assurance. Uh, but let me make it clear, despite that language of the upward and the downward steps, that the upward steps are only things that you can maintain on the divine steam, but God has to initiate them. And, and that you see that very clearly, I think, in his letters. And I've also got some prayers in there. Um, one reason, f basically, I included the prayers that I thought were philosophically interesting, which are not necessarily the prayers that are, um, I don't know, maybe most most characteristic of him. Although I do think that the the language of the prayers, the verbal um, elegance of the prayers, the kind of literary devices that he likes to use. If you if you haven't read any of the prayers, but you have read the Proslogion, you have seen the literary form of the prayers because the Proslogion takes the form of his prayers. And one of my arguments, um, and we made this back in the book and it's in the new volume as well, is that the Proslogion was actually a failed stylistic experiment. And one reason that there's so many diff you know, different ways of interpreting the, the argument of Proslogion 2 and 3 is that Anselm is trying to do analytic theology in the style of his prayers. And his desire for, for elegance and you know, literary symmetry and so forth gets the better of him and uh, undermines his usual clarity. Because Anselm is, except perhaps in the Proslogion, a writer of unusual lucidity. Um, and in the Proslogion, he does try to write the way he does in the prayers. And it's just a bad combination, I think. But the prayers, there's a, there's a great place in the prayer to St. Paul where he addresses Paul as mother and then addresses Jesus as mother. And I thought that was important in part because uh, Julian of Norwich, uh, whom 
I love and admire from the 14th century is usually the one who gets credit for Jesus's mother imagery. Uh, but there is Anselm using it uh, to great effect in uh, in the 11th. So we so I, so I have those prayers, and I've got the meditation on human redemption, which is basically Cordeus Homo in the form of a meditation. So I, I did have a question. You mentioned the procession of I think the Holy Spirit, where he has an account of individuation. Yes. Does his account differ, or is it the same as any other? sort of luminaries that we would think of. So Aquinas or Scotus, uh, other medievals. I don't, uh, that's a really good question. It does, it does differ from the, at least those later accounts in that there's, he doesn't have a specific principle of individuation. So for Scotus, it's the Hyxaity, which is um, a, a formal principle that is unique to each, each individual thing and is what somehow accounts for the unrepeatability of an individual, which is basically his fundamental notion of individuality. It's unrepeatability. Uh, for Aquinas, uh, in forms that are embedded in matter, matter is the principle of individuation. For uh, forms that are not material, the substantial form is itself the principle of individuation, which is why for Aquinas, you can't have more than one angel in a species, uh, a view that uh, that Scotus thinks is disastrous. Anselm doesn't really have any of that. He just has an, a, sort of an a, account of the difference between, as it were, what's metaphysically important about individuation and what is epistemically useful about individuation. So the idea is there are there are ways of telling that two things are distinct that don't get at the reason why they're distinct. And, and, and so if we're doing metaphysics and if we're understanding the distinction between the persons of the Trinity or the, the, the difference or the non-identity or however you want to put it, um, then we've, we've got to understand not just as it were characteristics that we can list that the father has that the son doesn't have. We've got to understand what it is in virtue of which the son is distinguished from the father. And uh, that account of individuation, also, he also he applies it implicitly in his letter on the incarnation of the word as well. It gets him into a little bit of trouble, Sandra and I argue, uh, because he's, he, when he's doing Christology, not for the sake of soteriology, so he's really, really interested in the work of Christ, as as we all know, right? And he's interested in the person of Christ only insofar as you need to understand the person of Christ to understand the work of Christ. When he's working on just the person of Christ kind of for free, he's, I would say, not always paying as close attention. And it may, well, I do think he gets himself in, into a little bit of, of trouble, a little bit of inconsistency. But I can also I, I will also say um, about that that very discussion in in the other book that it it actually precipitated the only thing I've ever had that I would consider something close to a mystical experience. Anselm uh, talks in on the incarnation of the Word, the only place in the treatises where he talks about this using this language, though it is in both in the early draft and in the final published version. He talks about a, a stage that's in between faith and vision, which he calls experience. And for him, experience of the truths of faith or of the reason of faith would be something like firsthand knowledge of their truth, some kind of seeing for yourself that it is so. And as I was writing this really kind of boring analytic philosophy passage, you know, so so that we can see that one and two together entail three, which is in contradiction to four. But Anselm is committed to seven, which seems to entail four. Right, that kind of, that kind of really deadly stuff, stuff that does not at all make you want to praise Jesus. I just had, it seemed to me, this momentary experience of the truth of the Chalcedonian definition. And since that, you could no more convince me that the Chalcedonian definition is mistaken than you could convince me that 2 plus 2 equals 5. I, it was just as though I'd experienced for myself that, that great truth. 
And I think that is, so I'm not important here, but what Anselm means, I mean, I'm really grateful for this experience. I am not a mystic. I don't seek mystical experiences. And obviously that was probably the least plausible basis for a mystical experience that you could possibly have. Um, but I, I am grateful for it. Um, Anselm himself, I think, was also not really a mystic in the sense of somebody who sought, for example, unitive experiences with the divine. Um, that was that was just not his spirituality. Um, it wasn't Augustine's either, I, I, I don't think. He had that one experience with his mom, you know, not long before she died, and he was grateful for it. Uh, but he, he didn't, he, you know, what does it, C.S. Lewis says about maybe the only uh, human request that God never grants is uh, encore. Um, so he did, Augustine didn't ask for an encore. I'm not asking for an encore. But I do think that gives a sense of what Anselm might mean by a state that is intermediate between faith and the the final vision of, of the truth face to face. Um, and he does think that is possible and obviously desirable for disciplined and honest inquirers. He doesn't think, you know, there's a technique that you can follow to guarantee it. Um, and it may just be that you, you do achieve understanding um, of a sort, but without that kind of first-handness that would that would characterize experience oh man that's 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 kind of speculation but i think it's probably right still uh, so this is super interesting so far i mean we've talked about all sorts of things that i don't think i usually hear in connection with anselm the things that i usually hear are free will divine simplicity and some of these other things that uh, atonement that people always want to talk about um of those three, do you have any interesting or unique takes on his account of free will or his account of simplicity or atonement? I'm not sure I have anything out of the ordinary to say about simplicity. Um, I have some views, uh, which are which are in print, not in, in this book, yeah. about how, in order, it's how it's hard for Anselm to have everything he wants to have, and some speculation then about how. How might he, consistent with what he does say, uh, reconcile some problems that have been raised for divine simplicity since his day? Uh, but as far as what his doctrine of divine simplicity is, I, I think I say what pretty much everyone says. It's you know it's fairly clear. Everything, everything God has, God is. Uh, that's straight out of Augustine, and he, I don't see him making any modifications of it or really any uh, striking developments of it. I guess one place where People have commented on this, but not as a challenge to simplicity, is in the Prosologian, where he he does allow for, as as I think he has to, he does allow for God's justice and God's mercy to play differing roles in the economy of salvation. Uh, you spare some people by your mercy and condemn other people by your justice, he says to God. Well, if God equals God's mercy, equals God's justice, then it's hard to see what the, how that statement could actually come out true. Um, but I haven't really done anything with that other than to say, maybe, maybe, maybe we'll take Cortes Homo in the account of the atonement as fleshing out the difficulty here, uh, rather than leaving. I mean, he, he leaves it in an underde underdeveloped state in, in Proslogan. So you can either say, he, he doesn't see the difficulty or he doesn't care to grapple with it. Well, he does see the difficulty because he actually tells you, I don't know what to say about this. Um, but it seems to me that he does grapple with it later in, in his account of, of the redemption. And that's other people have said that too. That's not particularly original with me. Um, so, but free will, I think is probably the place where I have the biggest disagreements with uh, some other scholars. Hmm. So I, I mean, I do agree that, that he's a libertarian, uh, that's, it seems to me that he's really the first person clearly to formulate, I'll just put my own cards on the table, why you absolutely have to be a libertarian. Um, and the, the reason for him, so it's 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you have not received? And Paul, of course, asks the Corinthians that, intending them for, for them to realize that the answer to that is nothing. Because, of course, he then goes on to say, why then do you boast as if you have not received? And Anselm very much gets the Pauline and Augustinian weight 
and I, I talk about this in the book, both the Pauline and Augustinian weight of the pressure to answer that question with nothing. And Anselm is not going to come around and say, yeah, but I got to go against Paul and Augustine here. But the thing is, I say he does go against Paul and Augustine here. If you, if you read particularly on the fall of the devil carefully and you, and you don't engage in eisegesis, it is very clear that ultimately we can say to, well, let's leave us out of it. The angels who do not fall can say to God, we have our choice of justice over advantage from ourselves. He expressly says that. Now, it is, he will say, now, of course, they, they also have it from God. They received it from God. But in what sense did they receive it from God? In the sense that they received their wills from God and that they received the powers that they then exercised in a way that God did not determine. So there is, and then I, I further argue that for Anselm, and this again going against some other folks, um, that for him choices are th things with positive ontological status. You can't coin them away uh, for Anselm. They they have being. And my, this is going to sound really snarky and uncharitable, and, I, and I, I apologize for it. My grounds for saying this is, he says it. He, he just explicitly says um, that choices have ontological status and moreover that um, evil choices have the same ontological status as good choices. It's just right there in the text. And he, and he needs to be able to say that. And he does all of the, sorry, Paul, sorry, Augustine, um, shuffling around, <laughs> looking, you know, sheepish that he needs to do. Um, given that he thinks that, right? He wouldn't have to say those things if he thought that, that choices had no positive ontological status. He could be a good Paul, uh, Pauline theologian and a good Augustinian. So I do, th I do think that choices have positive ontological status. So I think there is something good that has positive ontological status that of which creatures are the ultimate authors, namely the free choice to retain, not, not to gain ever, but to retain rectitude of will or justice um, over advantage. And I suppose one more thing I would say that, that, again, I don't think should be controversial because once again, it's right there in the text. Um, but it is often said that uh, in his attempt to have both human freedom and complete divine foreknowledge, uh, he uses a kind of Boethian divine spectator model of God's foreknowledge. So God sees all of time spread out before him. And uh, as a result, he, he knows what free choices we make, not any, but that, that doesn't necessitate our choices, doesn't, doesn't cause our choices uh, any more than, you know, my seeing a NASCAR driver make, uh, uh, what is that? A counterclockwise loop. Um, yeah. I take it we're probably neither of us NASCAR guys. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so whichever it is. Um, I'm of no use. Um, that doesn't cause the driver to make the loop. It doesn't necessitate the drivers making the loop, right? I, could, I can say, you know, given that I'm seeing that he's making the loop, he must be, or necessarily he is making the loop. But that's a, as Boethius says, that's a benign kind of necessity, right? Well... No. Um, I mean, that, that's right for Boethius, I think, though there's more to his answer than that. It is clearly not uh, Anselm's view on how foreknowledge and, and freedom are reconciled, because he expressly asks, um, does God get his knowledge from things, which would be the Boethian model, right? God looks at the things and gains his knowledge by looking out at the whole scope of time. Um, and he says, no, obviously, God can't get his knowledge from things that would violate divine aseity. So things get their being from God's knowledge. Now that poses other problems, um, which I deal with in that article about whether Anselm can have everything he wants. Uh, but there's no mistaking the fact that the, in the one and only place in which he considers the problem, he gives the answer that he gives. He does not give the Boethian divine spectator answer. Uh, he gives an answer that uh, is designed to maintain divine aseity, which the Boethian answer he clearly sees does not do because God depends on things to be what he is, namely uh, 
uh, omniscient or you know having complete knowledge of what to us is the future. Excellent. Well, man, this has been tremendous. So I think all of our listeners should know you should go buy these two books now. Thank um, you. you. You need to become familiar with Anselm number one, but you also, so you both get this introductory guide that's useful at, um, uh, for even church members. I think, you know, a lot of our listeners, you guys are interested in retrieving from the great tradition and having accessible volumes like this that can introduce you to great figures like Anselm are a great resource. So Dr. Williams, I mean, I gotta say thank you for the effort and the work you've put into both of these projects. Um, well, I thank think you. Make I, a lot of, thank you very much. I should yeah. say to prevent any consternation that the, the um, expanded translation volume is just out in the last week or so. Um, the VSI is out in the UK, but won't be out in the U S until February. I think it's 24th. Um, so, if you know, I would I would love for people to wait uh, and and buy it when it's available for, for you know people who are who are listening in the U.S. So that that will be there in February. You could you know go ahead and and buy ahead or whatever they call it now. Yeah, pre-order on Amazon. Pre-order, yes. Thank you. Um, I will if, find the link. I bet. It, let's see. I bet you the link is. I think it is already up because I'm pretty sure I looked at Amazon looking at this before we talked. Someone was, told me that was, they had pre-ordered it. I think. Okay, so Thomas, I'm just going to Google it right now while we're here. Yeah, it's it's there, eleven ninety five. So, it's extremely affordable. Yeah. Now, as far as like words per dollar, you're uh, you're better off with the the seventeen dollar, <laughs> you know, two hundred fifty thousand word volume. But um, that's a lot of Anselm. <laughs> well, we need more Anselm. So uh, I agree I, with that. I, I encourage you all to go get a copy of it. So, Dr. Williams, this has been great. Um, remind me again, you have a website that people can go to to keep up with your work, right? I do, uh, yes. It is uh, profthomaswilliams.com. It is right now under renovation, so it's gonna. I'm going to have this almost shamefully slick new version that's going <laughs> to be up on the web within weeks. Uh, so maybe you should go see it now when it's very homemade and modest looking and uh, doesn't seem to be catering to the sin of vanity in any way <laughs> that's awesome i think it's it's very useful so i've used it on many occasions um so i appreciate your work on all these things so everybody go check out uh, dr williams follow him on twitter you know keep up with his work because he's doing awesome stuff and it's stuff that you guys are really interested so in so i definitely recommend all that he's doing so everybody's been listening this is the only analytic baptist and confessional podcast on the planet and we'll talk to you guys soon When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.